They had been squirming in anticipation for some time now. In fact, their lack of knowledge morphed into quite a dispute. It was a literal he said, she said scenario. But now was the moment of truth, the big reveal, all in front of a live studio audience. The host of the program sat perpendicular to the couple in the typical TV-style chair. As he slouched one leg crossed over another, he peers down through his reading glasses to a card he's holding in his hand. And he gazes back up to the couple. He pulls the microphone towards his lips. He utters the following words. Mr. Smith, you are not the father. Knowing our family is a large component of knowing our identity. However, the search for our identity affects more areas of our life than we are aware. We want to know where we came from. We want to know how we belong. This is why paternity tests are important. Perhaps also this is why a website like Ancestry.com is so popular. People want to know who came before them, how they fit into the story of history. The search of where we came from is also why Jason Bourne went to war with the CIA. Well, friends, if you are any at all attuned to the culture around us, you will realize that many are facing an identity crisis. They don't know how to define themselves. They don't know who they are, where they belong. Do they define themselves by their occupation? Do they define themselves by their social status, by their belongings, by their hobbies, by their friends? Do they define themselves by the music they like, where they live? Maybe they define themselves by their ethnicity, their sexuality, or perhaps they define themselves by their personality traits, or even the results of an internet quiz. Now, any of these may give us hints into who we are, but the question is, is there something deeper than all of these? Now, it is natural and good for humans to search for their identity, to try to find the answer of, who am I? But if we grasp the importance of knowing our father or our family to understand who we are, then how much more important is knowing the one who created everyone and everything? So it's Youth Sunday, and there are many in our midst who are in high school, are going on to college, or are already in college. Now, you'll hear that high school years, and especially college years, are the years you find out who you are, the years your identity sort of forms. Now, regardless of your age or your stage of life, the text that we're going to preach on this morning comes to remind us that the starting place of answering that question, who am I, what is my identity, the starting place and the most vital component of answering that question is a person's relationship to God. 
a person's relation to God informs how we relate to others. And it informs how we fit into history. So let's open our Bibles or turn in your bulletin to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. The Word of God reads, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Would you pray with me as we begin? Oh God, what is said this morning Be faithful to your word. We want to stand upon what you have said, and we ask that you would still speak through your word to our hearts. So give us listening ears, God. Give us listening ears that you may mold us more to be the men and women after your own heart, to follow Christ more closely. God, do this to glorify yourself in our lives, in our lives together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Galatians 3, 26 to 29, the main point of this passage and the main point of this sermon then is that in the search for identity, we look to Christ because he shapes everything. So we're going to see different stages of this. So we see in verses 26 to 27 that Christ shapes our relationship to God the Father. Next in verse 28, Christ shapes our relationship to one another. And finally, Christ shapes our relationship to history. Now, before we dive in, if you haven't been with us in all of Galatians, it's always helpful to remind ourselves where we have been, how this text fits in the entire letter, all of Paul's argument. So Galatians, it's called that because the Apostle Paul, one who was a former terrorist to the church, became a Christian and was sent out to those outside of Israel, Gentiles. Among those were people in the region of Galatia. And so this letter is from Paul to those churches in southern Galatia. And it's one of the very first letters that he wrote. Now what is the central issue of Galatians? Well, if you've been with us, you know the central issue is how are we justified before God? How are sinful people justified before God. Justification, we remind ourselves, is a legal term. How does God, as judge, legally declare us as righteous? Well, the message of Galatians and the message of the gospel is that God does this by giving us that declaration. He gives it by grace, and it comes to us through faith. Faith, not in what we do, but faith in what Christ has done in our stead. His perfect life, his substitutionary death, confirmed by God raising him from the dead. Justification by faith. This is the central theme of Galatians. So how do we know we are justified by faith? 
Well, Paul gives several arguments. Beginning in chapter 3, he gives a theological defense. He first appeals to the Galatians' experience. He said they received the Holy Spirit upon their faith. And the Holy Spirit is a sign of the people of God. The people of God are those who have that righteous declaration of justification. So if they received the Holy Spirit upon faith, they were also justified upon their faith. How do we know we are justified by faith? Paul also says that we look to the model of Abraham, that this is how God has always operated. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, quotes Genesis 12, where it says Abraham believed God. He believed that God would provide. And therefore, God counted Abraham as righteous. He was justified. This is how God has always operated, by grace through faith. How do we know we are justified by faith? Well, Paul shows where the other way leads. What happens when we rely on the works of the law? In other words, what happens when we rely on our own obedience? Does it lead to the destination of blessing, of justification? It can't. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Relying on the works of the law, the law requires complete obedience, and no one can completely obey. So how do we know we are justified by faith? Because we have a worthy substitute. The one who lays hold of Christ by faith leads to the destination of justification. Finally, last time we were in Galatians, how do we know we are justified by faith? What's that argument for the central issue of the letter? Well, Paul explains that the law was given not to add to the promise that God would provide for justification. No, the law, the, one we, the thing we can't do, was given to show us how great the promise is, to show us how much we need God to provide the law lays hold of us, and it drives us to Christ. So this morning, we ask, what happens when we are driven to Christ and lay hold of him by faith? Who do we become? Well, we become children of God. So this, we arrive at our first point. Christ shapes our relationship with God the Father. Namely, in that in Christ, we are sons, it says in verse 26. Now, to break this down, we are sons, what that means, we're going to answer two questions. First, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? Secondly, what does it mean to be a son of God? Not the son of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? Who are the sons of God? Well, I've said several times that we are the sons of God, but we is not an all-inclusive term. In other words, not everyone is a son of God. God is not everyone's father. Now, there's an important distinction we have to draw between God as creator and God as father. God is universal creator. He has created everyone and everything. He has created all humans in his own image with a special capacity to relate to him. God is universal creator. 
However, God is not universal father. Who are the sons of God? They are those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are united to Christ Jesus. To be united to Christ is to have everything that he has. So when we are united to Christ, we gain sonship. And we are brought into the family of God. Who are the sons of God? They are those united to Christ. In verse 27, Paul gives two images to show what union with Christ means. He says, first, they are those who are baptized into Christ. Now, the word baptism here, baptizo, literally means immersed. They are those who are immersed into Christ, incorporated into Christ. So we see how water baptism by immersion pictures this reality. That it is a sign of the faith that is within us. That we have laid hold of Christ and are connected and united and immersed into him. It is the capstone of our experience to coming to Christ. Even Paul himself believed and was later baptized. It is a picture of our faith. Listen to Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we might too walk in the newness of life. Buried and raised picturing our union with Christ. But secondly, in verse 27, picturing our union with Christ, he says, we have put on Christ. Put on Christ. It gives that metaphorical idea of putting on clothing. So when you put on clothing, you are identifying yourself in some way. Take a a uniform or a, a jersey. Or even now, right now, Your clothing communicates something. So when we put on Christ, we are identified with him. Moreover, when we put on Christ, not only has he cleansed us from our sin, but he has clothed us with his righteousness, with his perfect obedience. So this is our union with Christ. And this union, friends, how is it secured? Is it slowly earned? Well, look at verse 26. Our union comes through faith. Thus, union with Christ is the hinge upon which our adoption turns. And it's secured by faith. So who are the sons of God? They are those who are united to Christ. But what does it mean to be a son of God? That might sound like a strange term. And actually, in verse 28, he, he says sons of God, a gender-specific term. He says women are included among this group. The word son had a special significance. First, in Greco-Roman culture, the culture in which Paul writes this letter, Sons were those who received inheritance. 
But secondly, in the entire Old Testament, God calls the people of Israel his sons. So if we're united to Christ, we are sons. That means we have the full status and benefits of the people of God. That's what it means to be a son. But it also means something else. And it relates to the nature of adoption. So to be a son, to be adopted into God's family is to be a recipient of his love and grace. Because who decides whether or not an adoptee is brought into a new family? Who makes that decision? Is it the adoptee? No, it's, it's the adopter. It is the father who chooses to bring us into his family. And that is a gracious decision. We are a recipient of his love, his adopting love. So friends, big picture, as the law holds on to us and drives us to Christ and as we lay hold of Christ in faith and we are united to him, we don't just become justified, declared as righteous. Then we are also brought into God's family. It is a new and glorious relationship. And we have students in our midst. And for anyone who has even been in school, you know that the life of a student is a long, arching trajectory. And throughout grade school, the relationship between a teacher and a student is authoritarian. And it should be. But something strange happens when a former student sees a former teacher the relationship changes. There's maybe a new level of respect. How they relate to each other is, is different. And especially this increases as years go by, as students get more education. Now recently on one of my flights, I sat next to a lady who had been a second grade teacher for over 30 years. And she said one of the, the best experiences of her teaching was seeing former students, how those relationships change. She saw them graduate high school. She saw them graduate college, start families, start careers. She see them in communities. She gains friendships from the students that she had when they were seven years old. So we understand how the relationship between a, a former student and a teacher changes. But have we really considered the new relationship we have with God in Christ? The relationship of God, the creator of the universe, the author of history, how this God is now our father? Have we considered the benefits of this family? Well, if you haven't, I want to show you four things that this adoption gives us. Four things that this adoption gives us. And the first is what we've hinted at already. This adoption gives us a glimpse into God's great love for us. And that he chose to adopt us. A verse we read earlier is 1 John 3.1. The apostles understood this. 
It reads, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. If we are in Christ, as if the judge declares legally righteous. But that's not the end of the story. It's as if he asks us to approach the bench and he steps down and he says, now you're a part of my family. Now you're coming home. The love of adoption. This is what it shows us. Theologian J.I. Packer draws out the analogy of adoption and asks how a father of an adopted child relates to that adopted child. How does he win the child's affection? By loving him or her. So think about that. We are adopted by God because of Christ. He is going to love us for eternity as our father. So friends, this morning, adoption shows us the depth of the love of our Father. And I ask you, do you trust the goodness of your Father, even now, if he's going to love you for eternity? What does adoption give us? Secondly, adoption gives us assurance. We may be tempted along with the prodigal son to say that we are not worthy of the Father's love. And in fact, friends, that's kind of a good instinct because on your own, you are not worthy of the Father's love. But if you are in Christ, when God sees you, he sees him. And he loves you as he loves him. And he's chosen to adopt you. And if God is your father, will a perfect parent ever cast out those he has chosen to adopt? Will a perfect parent ever do that? No. Those who come to him, he will not cast out. Our adoption gives us assurance. But thirdly, our adoption gives us hope. Hope of a present and eternal inheritance. This hope is so secure. It's so secure, friends, that in Romans 8.29, Paul can say that we are glorified. He can speak of future glorification as if it's already happened. Our adoption gives us hope of inheritance. Finally, friends, our adoption gives us a new motivation toward holiness. Those who are in Christ are part of God's family. So we do what pleases our Father. And our Father's will for our lives, what he wants for our lives, is holiness. He wants commitment to him with our entire being, and therefore removal from what is against him, removal from sin. And if God's will for our lives, if our Father's will for our lives is holiness, then like any loving father, he will discipline those who are his children who are not abiding in this will, who are not abiding and following Christ in holiness like any loving father will do. So we ask ourselves this morning, in light of our adoption, and it gives us a new motivation towards holiness, a new family, do we love what our father loves? 
Do we love what pleases him? Do we hate what displeases him? If we are in Christ and adopted, then do we bear a family resemblance? Do we look like we belong to God's family? Finally, are we proud to be a part of God's family? To have God as our father, Christ as our brother, each other as brothers and sisters. This is what our adoption gives us. But if being united to Christ through faith brings adoption by God, then there's a natural implication. If anyone who is in Christ is a part of God's family, that means all who are in Christ are brothers and sisters, are related to one another. So this is the second point. Christ shapes our relationship to one another. What Paul shows in verse 28 is that the basis of this family relationship is not ethnicity, is not socioeconomic class, is not gender. The basis of this relationship is faith in Christ, is our union with Christ. So this was counterintuitive to his day, and it's counterintuitive to our day. These three basic divisions of the world ethnic or racial, economic, and gender. Despite these divisions, he shows how adoption into God's family gives us the same family status, regardless of worldly divisions. So the first division Paul addresses is an ethnic, cultural, or racial one. And this would have been the most relevant to the churches in Galatia. In fact, probably all the churches in the New Testament Because what you had was two different groups that had been segregated for a really long time, and all of a sudden they're brought together, Jews and Gentiles. And what was happening in Galatia was that the Gentile Christians were being made to feel like second-rate family members. The Judaizers, who are Paul's opponents in Galatia, taught that to become full-status mem- family members, Gentile Christians had to become like Jews. However, even if they complied with this teaching, you could never be, be able to erase in their minds that they weren't naturally full-status family members. So what Paul says here reflects what Jesus says in John 3, that you must be born again everybody. Full family status comes to those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of ethnicity or race. And it is the same for those of different socioeconomic classes. Regardless of whether one is rich or poor, regardless of whether one is a part of the low caste or the high caste, regardless of whether one is upper class or homeless, regardless whether one is slave or free, if one has faith in Christ, then one's identity is that of one who is fully a part of the family of God. As a bit of a sidebar, it's worth noting that the system of slavery in the Greco-Roman world and even the broader biblical history was not the same as the one with which we're familiar of American history in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was not race-based. 
It was not cruel, at least as cruel, and it was voluntary. He would do it to pay a debt. That being said, Paul never endorsed slavery. Further, he saw the value of slaves obtaining their freedom. But Paul knew that he was not going to change this system that was ruled by the most influential empire in world history. But you know what he could do? He could say and encourage those in the church. And his priority and his concern was that Christians would be faithful to God in whatever situation which which they may find themselves. But I digress. The point that he's making here with class division is the same one he made with ethnic division. Just like Gentile believers should not feel marginalized in the church, neither should poor believers. And the third division, neither should women believers. The Judaizers' emphasis on circumcision automatically leaves out one group of people, women. They weren't valued in that day, and the society of that day is not that far off from ours. In fact, there's a well-known Greek prayer often attributed to the philosopher Socrates where he thanks God that he, was not, that he was born a human being and not a beast, that he was born a man and not a woman, and that he was born a Greek and not a barbarian. The women, just like slaves and Gentiles, were not valued. So yet again, Paul says that any person who has faith in Christ both male and female, have full status of the family of God. So one might ask how this meshes with the Bible's teaching of men and women's roles in the family and in the church, places like Ephesians 5, places like 1 Timothy 2. So even though men and women have the same status in God's family, is not that their differences are irrelevant. God gives men and women different roles, but he gives them the same status. Think of the Trinity. God the Son submits to God the Father. Is God the Son any less God? No. God the Son is of the same essence. He's of the same dignity. He's of the same value. Different roles do not imply different status. So it's important to understand what Paul is saying. It's not that our differences cease to exist when we come to Christ and lay hold of him in faith. No, our differences no longer divide. It's not that we are made identical when we lay hold of Christ in faith. No, but verse 28 says, we are made one. And that means before anything else, we're Christians. The depth of this unity means that we can now cherish our diversity. One commentator puts it like this. We have the best and truest fellowship when we recognize our diversity, but see it as less important than our unity in Christ. So when Don Haskins 
was a young basketball player. He took on a black friend of his in a game of one-on-one. And when he lost, something clicked in his mind that would have significance for him when he became the head basketball coach of Texas Western University. And when he became the coach, he made a concerted effort to recruit the best players in the nation, regardless of the color of their skin. And what happened was Texas Western, this little unknown school, began competing with powerhouses like Kentucky and Kansas. And in fact, they were so good, they made it all the way to the 1966 National Championship game against Adolph Rupp's Kentucky team. And for the first time in NCAA history, there was a starting lineup where all five players were African-American. And they won the game. Writing about, this, writing about the decision, Coach Haskins said, I really didn't think about starting five black guys. I just wanted to put my five best guys on the court. I just wanted to win the game. For Coach Haskins, the color of your skin didn't make you a full member of his team. Rather, it was simply the skill of your game. But it's the same to be a part of the family of God, to be a full member. It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are, how much money or influence that you have, whether or not you're male or female. To be a full member of the family of God, one must have faith in Christ. That is the entrance requirement. Because, friends, we have the same need. And we have the same Savior. So despite that reality, that in Christ our divisions no longer divide, that has just not often been the case, not just in society, but unfortunately, that hasn't been the case in the church. Pride evidences itself in racism. Greed shows up in class division. Lust shows up in how women are treated and undervalued. Because sin remains, we are liable to allow these divisions to spill over into the church. Therefore, we must be intentional about building a community that reflects the family of God. This begins by asking, what kind of community does Christ build? Well, friends, look to the text. Verse 28 He builds a community that is united around him and yet diverse. So churches must ask themselves, if their community is united around Christ or similarities in worldly standards, in Christ, the deeper unity or similarities in worldly standards. The reality is that people gravitate towards those like them. Like attracts like. Therefore, ministries often use tools to build community that is centered around something that is similar, worldly similarities, instead of Christ down here. In their book, Compelling Community, authors Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop are really helpful on this point. Ministries may build community around similar life stage, singles groups, college-aged, 
newly married. Ministries may build community revolving around similar identities or interests. Motorcycle churches, cowboy churches. Ministries may build community revolving around a similar cause, God-honoring causes, helping the homeless, preventing sex trafficking. Ministries may build communities around similar felt needs, wanting to feel emotion, entertainment. Ministries may build community around social position, those who are influencers, movers, shakers. Now, this reality up here isn't a bad thing. I don't want to communicate that. In fact, it's often a helpful thing in the Christian life to be surrounded by those who are like you. But don't let up here be the end-all, be-all of church community. Because God has intended for us to be down here. The depth of the unity of Christ. We should aspire to be a place where worldly similarities aren't necessary for belonging. A community that could not exist if it were not for God and the depth of the gospel. A community that lives out the blessing of adoption. The blessing of our new identity. That what divides us no longer divides us. This shows up in relationships that would never happen up here. And because we are a family, these relationships are more than just tolerating one another. Because we are a family, these relationships are loving one another. Friends, loving one another. Unity of a family. It requires depth. It requires vulnerability. It requires forgiveness. Brother and sister, if you are in Christ, if you have laid hold of him by faith, you are united to him, then you have a new family and you are called to this deep life and commitment among your brothers and sisters. But if you're like me, this sounds daunting. But that's why it's spirit-empowered. That's why it's driven and stands on the word of God. And that's why this community only exists when we are in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, the more we remember that we are in Christ, the closer and tighter our unity will be. And the more we will display the power of the gospel to the world. As if this weren't enough, brothers and sisters. Not only does our union with Christ through faith make us children of God and make us brothers and sisters with one another, but it also gives us a relationship to history. This is our third point. Listen to verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. How are we Abraham's offspring? Even if we're not ethnically in the line of Abraham. Once again, it's because we are connected, because we are united to Christ. That union, again, is secured by faith. 
He is the promised seed of Abraham. In chapter 3, verse 16, the seed of which the promise of blessing was made. And by virtue of our connection to him, we are also Abraham's offspring, a part of the long line of the people of God. And this is a special heritage. It's more special than Medal of Honor recipients. It's more special than Nobel Prize winners. It's more special than Pro Football Hall of Famers. This heritage is made up of those who have received God's grace through faith. So as you walk in this life tethered to Christ, you are tethered to the great line of faith that has come before us. Like those in Hebrews chapter 11. People like Abraham, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Deborah, David, the prophets. This is our heritage. These are our people. You think of church history. Augustine, who was an African. Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Lady Jane Grey, William Carey. These two are our heritage, our people. So when God made that promise to Abraham, he intended to reconcile one people to himself. And when we come to Christ, we come in that line of people. It's our new identity. This is what Christ has made us to be. So I close by asking, who are you? What is your identity? If your identity is anchored in anything or anyone else other than Christ, it will let you down. It's not where you're meant to be. It's not where you were made to be. However, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ, see the richness of this identity. Because Christ stands in our place, taking the punishment that we earned and giving us his righteousness. And because we are united to him, we now have God as our father. We are now brought together with one another, brothers and sisters. Those are part of the same family. And we are part of God's long line of his people. See what Jesus has done for our identity. Let's pray. Father, our Father, let those words never be vain. That reality that God, you are our Father. Do not let us lose sight of this and let us live out this reality of what Christ has won for us. A unity that is deep. Mold us more into him and with one another. And make us grateful and see all of the riches of being your children. Oh God, make us one even as we approach your table. What a great expression to show our unity as a family of those who have been bought by Christ. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.